If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love our new Trexperts briefing room where Darren and myself curate classic episodes of Star Trek with special guests from various Star Trek series talking about the episodes you love. I think that sounds great. Let's, well, I can't let's, wait to do it. Let's go see. What episodes are we doing, Darren? Well, I, we don't want to give it away. Okay. Well, then you need to watch Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you listen to Inglorious Trexperts and on the new Trexperts Briefing Room podcast feed. Don't miss it. Coming intermittently <laughs> in the coming weeks. Trexperts Briefing Room. It's what every real Trexpert needs. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's so on video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download got, the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States. Press the button. And there it is. There it is. And you can choose, you can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait, download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I'm your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. We are going to pick up our conversation right where we left off from part one of David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket. We are again joined by our guests from the Pure Cinema podcast, Elric Kane and Brian Sauer. Here we go. But anyway, it's then back to, oh, there's also a whole, I've got this nightclub scene where we meet another a girl who this one at least comes back at the very end, a girl named Diana, who they describe, basically they fall in love with in this scene and everyone at the club, nightclub keeps talking about how in love they are. Uh, and the, but we don't really then see her much, but this scene actually, I feel like would have been really cool the way it's written out where they're just at this nightclub and everyone's talking about how in love they are, but the detective keeps like looking around and will like notice one of the lights on somebody's table, like slightly flicker or dim. And I just feel like this scene would have been slowly getting really tense uh, until the shit hits the fan. And in this scene, the fan is that the detective and Diane are dancing 
And suddenly the band starts going crazy and the cook runs out of the kitchen and yells, all my animals bleeding from my the mouth, my pig. <laughs> and then a pig that is just bleeding profusely from its mouth starts running around the room. The orcas is going crazy. A guy shoots the pig and the cook's like, why did you shoot my pig? And starts attacking that guy. And then a, a guy he describes as like a lumberjack walks in the scene and is like, I bet I could throw that pig. <laughs> and the cook doesn't want him. He's like, I can throw that pig. Don't throw my pig. It's dead. What do you care? Don't throw it. I can throw that pig farther than anyone can. By God, I know I can. Uh, and then spins the pig around and throws it. And uh, well, I think when he was a kid, he met a lumberjack. And um... <laughs> <laughs> but what I... <laughs> So, and by this point, because uh, I, I wanted to go back just to really highlight the flow of this movie, uh, we still have not gotten to the part on the Ronnie side where he joins this band. All this stuff has happened. The detective has gone through like five different movies worth of insane subplots. <laughs> um, and Ronnie finally joins this band. Uh, he's getting all fucked up, but Mr. Barco and the band don't care because they love his this awesome sound that comes out of him when they plug him in uh, to the band's instruments. Uh, Dan and Bob arrive. They're really mad at first until Mr. Barco's basically offers them a bunch of money. Uh, we cut back. You know, to he that reminded that me of Mr. Barco. I had because I only saw it this year, and and this has been a long going saga that Brian knows. I only saw the Apple this year, but I kept thinking of the main <laughs> record producer in the Apple. Oh, he just reminds me of Mr. Barco in this film. I don't I know like if it's that. that. <laughs> um, I kept seeing, even though I knew he wouldn't have been in Lynch movie, and now I feel bad. I love him, and I'm brain farting his name. You know, he was Doc Hopper in the Muppet movie. Uh, uh he's in so much. He's in Tootsie. Oh, He's oh, at home oh, for the holidays. Oh, it, hang on a second. Uh, As well, is, brain farting. No, I know. Oh my uh, god. He's in. He's in. When a stranger calls. He's god in everything. <laughs> he was even on an episode of Thirty Rock. Whatever. We'll we'll hopefully remember his name later, and people listening to this who know him will be thinking we're all idiots. Charles um, Durning. Charles Durning. Oh, the best kind of picturing from him little as a whorehouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we cut back to Deborah's apartment where she's very upset that they made this deal with Mr. Barco, but they're excited, which they described as all the money because it's so much money. We can almost build a hospital or become famous someday. We could do surgery every day. <laughs> uh, they're basically just like little kids, especially Bob, who always wants to make a malted uh is his in every that was like their whole opening scene that i didn't mention at the time but he he always wanted to celebrate before they even started working on ronnie's like let's make a malted <laughs> dan's like that's all you ever want to do uh, but anyway they decide to go along with this uh they let ronnie join this band for this battle of the bands i feel like this scene in particular would have been very funny uh where they plug him in and it's kind of just going horrible and there's all these explosions and ronnie's basically dying and then at the end he just like falls over dead but then the audience who had been just like like had been dancing but just completely stopped and were in stunned silence but then they erupt in thunderous applause and just love uh, this Ronnie sound. <laughs> um, so then they they win a record deal, uh, but Dan and Bob and Deborah are getting kind of upset because 
Ronnie's all fucked up. And this eventually lead, will lead to Mr. Barco. Like, uh, oh, cause they get busted by like a doctor who they take Ronnie to. And we, this is kind of when we reveal that they've been like banished from the medical world because they keep stealing bodies of terminal cases from hospitals to experiment on making their average handsome man or whatever they're really going for there. Uh, that was one of my pleasant surprises of the script is when I slowly realized that Dan and Bob and Deborah are like supposed to be sympathetic characters who really care about Ronnie and we're like rooting for them. Um, I don't want to skip over any of your guys' thoughts. Did you had any further, further observations at this point in the movie? Not, not too much really yet. No, just, I, just still kind of trying to figure out like, where is this going? What, what movie am I reading? And again, as Alric said before, he's sort of analyzing it and or interpreting it through the lens of Lynch as we know him. And even then, it's still really hard. But like, I think you said before, Josh, it's like if you read any of his scripts, I suddenly was realizing like, he's just not a guy that I want to read a script from because I just know whatever he does with that script is really going to be the thing. And I'm, I can imagine it, but I don't have David Lynch's imagina imagination. So I can't really, I mean, I, you know, I can't really imagine reading Lost Highway crazy like man. if that was somebody's that first <laughs> that's a good script but 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 yeah. i bet i bet you that this is actually a really good point i bet you that lost highway script i have because it was like a you know one of the professionally released ones i bet you that is you know the filmed that yeah, they then that's what they always release right. which kind of so, disappointed me when i was younger when i realized i'm like i can watch the movie i don't need a well, yeah, like but think about Blue Velvet. Or... You know, if, if it was Blue Velvet, the actual script, which is what we are reading, we are watching because Ronnie hasn't been made. So if Ronnie was made, this might be a 90 page script and might, you know, be more, not necessarily more coherent, but just trimmer. Because Blue Velvet, mm -hmm. as I was talking about recently to, to Brian on one of our episodes, I had just watched all the extras. And the extras, which in other words, the script, would have been a movie that just doesn't work. It is like a much more at college and all these things that just feel um, like a sillier movie. And, and it makes you realize that some people maybe have to shoot lots to and get all their ideas out and then find the ones that are really um, kind of pushing things forward. So in a lot of ways, yeah, I agree. I think this would probably be a very different um, version that we would see filmed, the next draft, the filmed draft, you know? Especially oh, with all the lost, repetition. Oh, go on, Steve. Oh, no, just really quick about Lost Highway. My favorite thing about that script is like the first page. It says it's a 21st century noir horror film, a graphic investigation into a parallel identity crisis, a world where time is dangerously out of control, a terrifying ride down the Lost Highway. And so I thought that was really interesting that he had to explain. Explain it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to set you up if you didn't see the movie, you'd be like, what the hell is this? Yeah, because I was, because that was like one of the, you know, I loved that movie when it came out and I kept yeah. watching it to figure it out, but I didn't have this script to know that this was a world where time is dangerously out of control. Well, and, <laughs> and the other, I guess the other caveat here to just uh, put forward is, and there's a big difference between the things Lynch wrote alone and the things he wrote with people and the scripts for with mm -hmm. Mary Gifford and people like that are far more literate. And, and just in terms of the writing and even Twin Peaks because, and the characters are being written uh, by Frost. And so I just, I think well, the things he wrote alone are coming from a different place. Yeah. We were talking about structure, how much more yeah. structured he is when he works with Gifford and mm -hmm. other people. Um, and, and sparser, you know, I think their script, if you read them, they're just like a couple lines of description, a lot of dialogue, you know, so it's quite different. 
Yeah. yeah. And I mean, not that I mind unstructured Lynch, like I'm totally fine with that, but I do think it's interesting that he has a different approach with other collaborators. And those movies are again, more con in very big quotes, conventional than, you know, something like a racer head, which this seems to be more in that, that camp, as we've said. Oh, absolutely. It's very, and, and it's also, I think the other thing is that when he was getting into the script um, around the time of a race ahead, also he was finding transcendental meditation and he was really getting into all that. And one of the things like in his book, it mentioned uh, about this is that in this story to lose consciousness is this is to die and love and pain are the energies that allow people to remain conscious. So it's kind of like one of the reasons why that you brought up earlier, the whole pain thing, you know, to lose pain, you know, the pain is keeping you conscious to lose that you die. So it's a very, there's like, you know, you start to realize it's like, wow, so this is a very kind of spiritual script for him. And this is all in his head, but how are other people, you know, like you guys that, you know, I didn't notice until I was looking at his book. It's like, yeah, how else do you, you know, it must be difficult for people to read this and be like, what, you know, a lot of this is all in his head. It's all these meetings that he's, you know, with his own beliefs is putting into this. Well, and it does, it definitely stays very strange, but it does almost start to, like it starts making a little more sense the further we get into it. Just some of this total nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause like Ronnie, as the movie progresses starts like when he's getting really hurt, we'll just kind of mutter weird random stuff. And he keeps talking about break the circle, break the circle, bad electricity reverse. <laughs> but you start to see like the idea of life as a donut, a circle, break the circle, standing on one foot rather. I mean, standing on two feet, isn't a circle, but the idea of your shoelaces being untied uh, it's, it's sort of starts making a strange amount of sense. And, the idea of electricity, I remember when Twin Peaks The Return came out, I saw somewhere people pointing out that there was some some kind of electricity theme going there with the idea that Agent Cooper initials are AC and then there's Doppelganger Cooper is, you know, DC, the two different flows of electricity and just kind of all this I think he disappears into a or he reappears in the series through one of those electrical plugs in the in the wall. Like at some, he's playing with a fork and he's been gone for 20 years and then he just appears or whatever in the series. And that's where he came back. So I think there's definitely something. Yeah, and it, it definitely with. highlights that Lynch has whatever, again, whatever it means to him, this idea, mm -hmm. an interest in electricity and the idea of quote unquote bad electricity and reversing the flow of the bad electricity. Um, yeah, <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, but then well, I, I give it oh, to you, Josh, to break this down because it's like mind bending when I was reading this <laughs> and that you were able to, <laughs> you know, like I said, so. it's slowly, the further you get into it, it's kind of like the, the pieces do line up a little bit. Almost um, traditional in its last act and in the sense that it's all coming together for it the does big all, like Everything mm -hmm. does in fact all come yeah. together. Uh, and now we reach the crucial step where we Terry finally brings the detective to Bill, who people remember is the the one guy who knows how to reach the innermost point of the city where Hank is. Uh, Bill and Bill is very violent and scary. 
Uh, again, something I haven't been highlighting, but kind of what Brian was saying of like sudden violence. Although in this, a lot of it feels a little bit more slapstick, slapsticky, but there's a lot of stuff where just one character will randomly like beat the shit out of another character. The, a lot of like, at one point, Bill threatens Terry in a very strange specific way where he's like, I'm going to punch you three times in the head and then does it. Um, but Bill's very scary and he wants to kill the detective, but the detective pulls his gun and the Terry's like, we got to listen to him, Bill. And Bill's like, no, I'm going to get the gun away. And he's like, Bill, he can stand on one foot. Bill's like, show me. And the detective does. And finally Bill backs down. It's hard to kill a man who can stand on one foot. Um, I wrote that then, one down too. My other favorite line. <laughs> uh, but then they're like, well, we don't have time for this. Cause this neighbor kid Riley always comes over at this exact time every night to watch science world. And then we take a brief break <laughs> to watch science world, which also seems like it would have been pretty funny, which is just some like dopey, uh, science show involving three scientists and all they describe on he describes it in great detail actually that one of them is just watching the other two scientists who are kind of fighting over who gets to twist a screw on this metal box and that's basically all we ever see of the show uh, but during all this bill gets away the detective's gun and his seized power uh and he's like but now we're gonna go to bed uh and then at night <laughs> Uh, Bill's wife Eileen sneaks in and I bet you can never guess what happens she shows him her breasts and they start making out um, but uh, and, uh, yeah Bill comes in gets mad but anyway it's like it's time to go into the inner city to find Hank Bartels so it's the detective Riley Bill and Terry and then when they get out in the street this I was very surprised by talk about random violence uh, Terry, who at this point we'd started to think was maybe more on Bill's side than the detective, jumps on Bill's back and he's like, quick, you need to kill Bill. Uh, and uh, so, so the detective and Riley, who, by the way, is a small child, keep trying to find different objects just out <laughs> on the street to beat <laughs> Bill to death with. And then they do. They beat Bill and then he's dead. And I was like, wow, that was... <laughs> These these storylines have been so fun loving. I wasn't really expecting our nice handsome hero and this small science TV loving child to beat a man to death with like rocks and a <laughs> pipe. <laughs> um, but now is where we like kind of I guess start entering the end game uh, where they realize sort of some of the meaning with the shoelace is untied and that maybe that's the way they can also beat Hank. They have to untie his shoes and make him notice it. But the question is like, how do we get into the inner city? He's so powerful with all his electricity. There's also a lot of stuff in this too, which there's really no way to fully process while reading. But Lynch will describe in the blocking that in this scene, everyone's walking really weird and like taking pauses, breathing in between all their lines as they're just kind of getting increasingly fucked up by all the electricity. This is also, we're cutting back and forth with Ronnie, uh, who keeps getting more and more fucked up. And the, the band's really evil. And one of them, Fred, like thinks it's funny to like make Ronnie explode even when they're not <laughs> on stage. Uh, and they're all very callous. And they eventually like fire 
uh, Dan and Bob and Deborah so that they can bring in their own doctor. And it's kind of a weird moment of that. It's almost like the scene in Iron Man, you know, where uh, Jeff Bridges is yelling at the guys like, why, you know, Tony Stark built this out of scraps in a cave or whatever. And he's like, well, why not Tony Stark? But where the doctor's like, I don't even understand how they put this guy together. I don't even get what he is. Uh, it is so, very Tony Stark. The, the mechanical thing on his heart is very similar. Yeah, it's true. It's I, true. I don't think I even described that. But he does alive, have yeah. kind of the Iron Man thing, which probably would have been pulsing and glowing mm. throughout. The, but yeah, Brian well, noted it, it's it's a little hard to fully grasp <laughs> what he's supposed to look like because he sounds like a real monstrosity. Just like anytime he is described with like just shit sticking out of him and his face is all machine. Eric Stoltz on his knees is what I kept thinking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's what I wanted anyway. <laughs> Josh, I, I kept thinking too of well, the, the other doctor kind of as like the con ed man in Ghostbusters when they, when they, the EPA, oh. when uh, they bring him down, he's like, I've never seen <laughs> anything <laughs> like this. I don't think I should. It's a little bit of that for me with that doctor, the other doctor, which is he has he has a slightly more confidence in his ability. But then later he reveals like, yeah, I was kind of full of shit. Like, I actually don't really know what the fuck is happening here. <laughs> oh, I also left out uh, like as Ronnie keeps getting more famous, they expand his act. And now the rock band, they pair him up with a tap dancer named Electra Cute. Yeah. good name whose whole thing is she'll like tap dance and then she'll go over and touch Ronnie and get electrocuted and kind of incorporate being electrocuted into her dance moves. Hmm. And then we, we get like cutaways. Oh, I even have a little yeah, cutaways to people around the world loving Ronnie's band in his strange, crazy sound in which, as I noted before, he's essentially almost dying with every performance and just kind of like flopping over and convulsing, as to, to Elric was saying before, on the floor uh, as he's emitting wonderful, horrible sounds. Um, and another crazy moment of violence is uh they managed to Dan and Barb, Dan and Bob and Deborah steal Ronnie back, get him back to the lab to help him because they're like, oh, he's so fucked up. Barco and his like stooge, Mr. Green, burst in the lab. And there's kind of like a funny shootout where Green's trying to shoot them and they're ducking behind things and things are exploding. Uh, and I say funny until uh, he shoots Bob and Bob dies. And then Dan is very upset about it. And then he shoots Dan and Dan dies. And meanwhile, they told Deborah to hide in the closet. And then like she makes a noise and then Mr. Green just like shoots the closet and kills her inside and our lovable heroes uh, are all dead there. And Ronnie's left to the evil band again. Uh, or are they though? <laughs> or are they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, don't give anything away, Brian. Uh, another <laughs> amazingly strange scene where they're, Going so the the inner every place in this world seems fucked up, but the inner city Lynch makes sure we understand is is way more fucked up than the outer city. People are covered in these like gross warts that are like red and flat. I couldn't quite tell if they were. He wanted them to be like literally glowing when he's saying that they're like burning red, or he just meant that they're just like really disgusting and inflamed. Um, sorry, I don't remember Steve if you mentioned this, but it's like when because his first movies were black and white and he was intending this to be like, you know, like real crazy and colorful, I think was part of his initial vision of what he wanted it to look like. 
uh, which might explain all the fun electricity and lots of people starting on fire. <laughs> um, but so our, our heroes, along with the detective who've killed Bill, so now it's just the detective, Riley and Terry are making their way through the inner city, trying to hide from the donut men. Uh, I think they have another run in with the donut man and they, they test their theory of yelling your shoelaces are untied and it works. And they're like, oh my God, that's maybe when they realize they could use this to defeat Hank. Um, also, they increasingly have to keep like stabbing themselves with pins and needles more and more. Uh, they end up hiding in a woman's house who's covered in warts. And <laughs> the weird detail where she's like, my daughter's having a dance party in her basement. And they're all kind of like, yeah, we shouldn't go down there. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't gonna. Don't worry about it. Um, but then the bad guys show up and they're forced to go down to this like junior high slow dance party. Um, and foolish me, I thought since it's being described as like a junior high slow dance party, there's no way a girl's gonna expose her breasts and make out with the detective. <laughs> I was very wrong because that is 100% what happens is... They managed to get Riley and Terry sneak out a window. And just as the detective is about to do it, one of the girls who's named like Gerstein or something holds a knife <laughs> to his throat and is like, dance with me. So he starts slow dancing with her uh, and she exposes her breasts and says, feel me. And then he, after he does that three, not all three of his fingers start on fire. I thought that was interestingly hmm. specific. Um, they managed to escape from this other crazy thing. Uh, and now as to what Brian was saying, interestingly, they bump into Bob and Dan and Deborah who are alive in the inner city. So I'm like, Oh, is this like the inner cities, like the afterlife or something? They certainly don't explain it within the context of the film, but okay, that's what I was going to ask because I was like, "Wait a minute, what? They were dead." But they now talk about not. some sort of time. There's one line in the description talking about time as time is a on donut itself or something. <laughs> yeah, there is some some throwaway line around that part that made me go, "Oh, is that why they came back? Is everything going backwards?" But then it's really never talked about again. Time so. is a flat donut. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> um, and this is, yeah, everything kind of starts converging together. Riley has a little weird box he made that he calls a deflector, which Bob and Dan determine can somehow reverse electricity. And they realize like, oh my God, when whenever Ronnie was muttering about reverse the electricity, this is what he meant. Um, and so they finally go to face off against Hank and this like cuts back and forth with what is ultimately Ronnie's like final performance where they're going to turn up his like juice all the way up to 10. Basically, Mr. Barco doesn't care. He needs that great performance. Um, and I'm trying to even think of how to quickly sum this up, but we end up cutting back and forth between uh, the detective, like Hank has like crazy magical powers. Once we finally get to him, he is very much like a video game boss and sort of is able, he has electricity powers, but also can clearly might manipulate time and space within his surroundings. Cause there's, he transports the detective to like an auditorium where everyone in the audience, is a sold out crowd of other Hanks. Uh, but then he also brings in Bob and Dan, uh, oh, I guess I, there's kind of a detail almost like uh, 
where they're all trying to make it in and Bob and Dan and Deborah and then Terry and Riley are all slowly like kind of passing out. And it's only the detective who can actually reach Hank. Uh, but then Hank makes the other ones appear in the audience and they're kind of trying to get the deflector to work. And the idea that they need to like in, hurt themselves, cause themselves just enough pain to stay just conscious and competent enough to get the deflector to work, to reverse the polarity or whatever on Hank while simultaneously uh, Ronnie is giving his big final explosive performance uh, and things kind of converge all at once. Um, and detective is like, his like body is contorting and getting all weird. And he ends up seeing Diana, who I mentioned is the only one who returns in any way in the sense that he sees here. But I think this, I feel like this actually would have made more sense in the previous version, which I mentioned with the smiling woman who were only kind of, was, is more of a symbolic thing that we're always kind of seeing through and out windows. And then he sees her here again at the end, but this is kind of representing, there's a lot of stuff in this about like love and true love and the idea of that sort of, I guess, the relevancy of Bob and Dan and their strange three-way relationship with Deborah, but they all love each other. And they kind of realize that they're like Ronnie's parents and they feel bad for like not listening to him better when they realize that the strange symbols he'd been drawing like meant something. Um, but we do build up to the climactic moment where time is folding in on itself and the detective now like sees Ronnie up on stage uh, and Bob and Dan and Deborah and Riley get the gizmo to work at just the right time. And the detective triumphantly looks over to Hank and says, Hey, Hank, your shoelaces are untied. Uh, and Hank, you know, explodes and dies. And then there's a great sequence of everyone kind of like ascending up to heaven. And I'll just read this last page and a half. Ronnie full floats up golden in space. The detective, Terry, Bob, Dan, Deborah, Diana, Riley, all float and merge inside of Ronnie. The whole city is golden inside of Ronnie. Ronnie sings his love song. Ronnie is a golden egg. The egg appears in a room now. The room has an ocean for a floor. In the room, many titan golden eggs float. A small girl sits on her father's lap. We see the strangely beautiful girl, but the father's back is to us. Little girl says, Father, when will all the new universes be born? Father, soon. And when they are, I'm going to get you a great big chocolate to celebrate. Oh, Father, really? She hugs him. And as they get up to leave, dot, 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 we move with one little golden egg across the room to a blue lady with four, four arms who is doing a strange dance on a lily pad. One arm stops dancing and reach out, reaches out. The finger, touch, or finger touches one little golden egg. The woman smiles and laughs. And the woman says, Ronnie Rocket, the end. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's where it really got. I mean, that there, there was a couple <laughs> of images in the new Twin Peaks that reminded me of that kind of stuff, like with the weird tree. I don't know if you've seen there's, there's some weird tree in the, the stuff in the dream world had images. It Actually, might've even had a dream, the person with the multiple hand, arms. I was going to say, I, that was a show I, cause I did, I didn't have showtime. So I just got showtime for like a week. And when I was back visiting my parents, in Minneapolis, I like essentially binged it all. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I was like, this is actually not a good movie to binge. It pro probably would have been yeah, nice to have like good. a week to process in between each episode. You talk can't to my watch friends. too much of Dale Cooper's uh, <laughs> his oh, character. I mean, the one, you know, it, uh, 
I, I did feel like it melted my brain by the end, which yeah. in its own strange way was kind of a unique and like, I don't know if I'd say pleasurable experience, but I was just, I was definitely, it's amazing Showtime gave someone the amount of money necessary to make a show that intentionally like inaccessible to the average person. And yeah, everyone, right. every week we we're talking about it. Every week people, it was the last oh. show I remember that people talked about, mm -hmm. like actually talked about like, what happened? Was that boring? I missed that guy. I kind of hated him before. Like it had that kind of, by not binging it, I think. And that's I think it, that's the only way, cause I, yeah, I was like a kid when the original Twin Peaks was on. So I didn't watch it till years later. Um, but I do remember that it was, it, it was that water cooler show that somehow normal people were actually watching. And so in that sense, thinking of it being 30 years later, I almost feel like you had to do that to get that same vibe. Like you couldn't just do something toned like season one of Twin Peaks and have it feel as special. It would have had more of that kind of boring, like, oh, we're just doing another season of this show that's exactly like it was then, but it's so much later that it now doesn't, like it doesn't have the same juice. Yeah. But I mean, you definitely, you really do see this sprinkled throughout that series. And, and we, there's a couple other things, like as you're reading that last page, like me and Brian watched um, his live musical event that we had never watched, uh, Industrial Symphony number, is it nine? I think nine, yeah. Or number, yeah, I think it's Industrial Symphony that he made right after Wild Heart, Wild Heart. And it's, you know, it's in the live, a live industrial rock show with Julie Cruz, who did the songs from, you know, Twin Peaks, but Michael J. Anderson is in there cutting wood live the whole time. And so it had this, like when we, when I'm reading the parts from Ronnie Rock, I can totally see some of it because of that. And you can watch that on YouTube. It's like a 40 minute piece of live kind of theater, I guess. And then there's little bits of the darkness of Lost Highway and there's all the Baron Harkonnen stuff in Dune. And, uh, but the, but of all the stuff that felt the most Ronnie-ish, not the, without the comedy tone, but is that one minute short film that me and Brian kind of, we give a bit of a rave to, which is that he made for Lumiere. Um, this, you know, our a hundred minute that. documentary. It, it's yeah, it's on YouTube. It's a one minute. It's Everyone made a one minute film, all these directors with the original Lumiere camera. But this one is, yeah, it's called Premonitions Following an Evil Deed. And some of the industrial and kind of the torture device and that you see in this like one minute film, you're like, oh, I can see where he's maybe seeing some of, just some of these kind of weird violent moments or people floating and electrodes being shocked. It's totally not similar because it's, it's not comic at all. But so I feel like he maybe at this point has sprinkled enough of these ideas across his work to feel maybe mostly satisfied. I think, especially in the return, I think some of that, you know, they turned David Bowie's character into a giant, you know, uh, kettle pot <laughs> or something, a black cauldron pot at some point that talks and you're like, what? You know, but, but it's there. And so it feels like he got to go all the way with these ideas finally. And maybe that's enough, you know? Well, and refresh my memory from returns. Like I said, I only watched it once and because I binged it, it's just like, it's all just one long insane thing in my mind. What was with the guys who are like all kind of covered in black? Are they, they're not like lumberjacks. Are they coal miners? Or I mean, now they do look, they look like a mixture between a lumberjack and coal miner. Yeah. They, I don't remember their exact role, but they're on that, that episode. I've only seen it once, but they are in that episode eight. That is just, it's like one of the best movies David Lynch has made in the last 20 years is that one episode because it's just so cinematic and unfiltered. Like he's doing whatever he wants. And it feels very cinematic compared to the there's rest. Like, of the show. You know, like I said, there's that crazy lumberjack who's like wants to throw the pig, and I didn't mention it because it's only a minor part of Ronnie Rocket. But there is a lot with 
uh, Mr. Murdo, who's like the teacher, the principal, uh, when he sees Ronnie, he interprets the reason Ronnie looks so fucked up is because of coal poisoning and talking about like, I grew yeah. up in like a coal town and or even the school is, cause I think even the way they describe the blackboard where he makes Ronnie go up to do a math problem is like so covered in coal that like just the way the chalk kind of describes how the chalk looks on it. So yeah. there are these, yeah, like what is his interest in coal and lumberjacks and the way- Yeah, I don't know what the industry in the town ways. he was from was. I can't remember from his biography, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he's just so middle American. He's just, that's what's weird. His, his there's no gray. He, he goes dark and he goes innocent light right like in his movies like and he can do it in one beat like you said when he is i really like the scene where the detective falls in love with that other girl and what all that's really happening is two people going i want to fall in love with you and yet somehow as a reader you're going i kind of believe it because you want to believe it and he does that in blue (laughs) velvet when sandy walks out of the light he does it time and time again but he can then follow that with a moment as dark as frank booth a moment as dark as you know uh mr eddie or robert blake's character mystery man like it's really there's no one really mm-hmm. who can do turn things on a dime like that but that's because that's who he is it seems like to be who he is the way he thinks and feels you know which is uh yeah national treasure <laughs> in my no, opinion. like the cowboy as well as yeah like... the cowboy yeah who's oh, who has such a kind of nice demeanor but mm-hmm. is very threatening you know in no, mall drive uh, Steve, so what do you got for us now? All right, I'll walk us through the, the rest of the history, but really quick, I looked up what a golden egg is, and it, it sounds like it's the, according to online, it's the source of creation, the source of the creation of the universe, as well as an avatar of Vishnu. So I guess, like I was saying earlier about like how he was getting into transcendental meditation, I think all that imagery does come from probably all of his learnings of all that, those little symbolism. But I don't know much about any of that stuff, so I can't really dissect it as well. But I started doing it as soon as we finished our episode. Oh, you have. Yeah. I, told, I told Brian, I wanted to do it like eight years ago. And then as soon as we finished recording, I was like, I'm going to call and actually ask what to do. Trans- and I've done it for about a week, but nothing with a golden egg has come up yet. Oh, it, they, they kind of dispel the religion thing. I think that's only for people who want to get into the mystical India side of things. Otherwise, it's just hmm. like meditate, a kind of meditation. I, I try to meditate. I have so much going on in my head. But I, after doing like all this this research and stuff i've been look i want to do that as well i want to try the transcendental meditation i will talk you through because it is actually pretty practical it's surprisingly not guruish uh, as i said to brian after watching it i was always like i don't want to wear white robes and then i watched lost highway again and i was like if anyone is doing this thing and still can make (laughs) lost highway there's clearly nothing gonna get in your way i mean that movie is so Mm -hmm. dark and so you know well formed but yeah well, just the way he talks about it and how it helps him and helps his art and how he helps him deal with things, you know, you know, especially being in this film industry, which is always messes with your head. It's like it's, I've been thinking a lot about doing it the last week, you know, doing all this. So I think I'm, you know, I try to meditate, but like I said, man, blocking out stuff out of my head is difficult. But anyway, I'm, let me walk us through the rest of. <laughs> no, of I think we need to get into this more, guys. Now, yeah, let's I, all... I agree. <laughs> so, so I can give you all a mantra, really, and we can. Uh... Yeah, please. Um, all right. So in uh, all right, so I'm gonna go back to 1986. Uh, Lynch in October 1986, Lynch says he's rewriting the script for Ronnie Rocket, and production will start in spring 1987, and the budget will be seven million, and it will be shot entirely in Northern England. 
And but while he works on Ronnie Rocket, he plans to write a broader comedy called One Saliva Bubble with Steve Martin currently considering the the role a role. I did and read that one. That's about a bunch of cows who have human brains. Oh no, no humans, I, humans with cow brains. I have not read that one. I have it, but yeah. Um, <laughs> 1987, he is nominated for Best Director, and he hopes to reteam with Isabella Rossellini and Dean Stockwell with Ronnie Rocket. And this time he wants to shoot it in Hoboken, Hoboken New Jersey. Then February 1987, um, again, it, um, they say that Ronnie Rocket will, be, will come out November 87. And um, Interview Magazine went to interview him and they says he was in a small white office in Los Angeles and there was dozens of index cards pinned to the wall with scene breakdowns of Ronnie Rocket. So it looked like you he said was Dean on Stockwell. A, yeah, Dean Stockwell and Isabella Rose, Rossellini was going to be in Ronnie Rocket. I wonder who Dean, I feel like Rossellini, I have to imagine, was Deborah. I'm trying to think of who Dean Stockwell would have been. Maybe Mr. Barco? Mm, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, or could he be? He couldn't be Hank, could he? Like that would have. To oh, be he could have been else. Hank. Hmm. I don't know, or one of the scientists. I don't know. Yeah, he could have been a lot of things, I guess. Yeah, it's tough to figure out. Um, yeah, and then he, like I mentioned earlier, he meets uh, Michael Anderson at the Manhattan nightclub. So it seems like things are rolling. And then in March '87, because um, Dino De Laurentiis wasn't getting Ronnie Rocket, um, David Lynch switches to a different movie called Up at the Lake. And Up at the Lake will replace Ronnie Rocket as Lynch's next film for De Laurentiis. Lynch described it as a frightening sexual journey of a young woman that could be a murder mystery as well. And Lynch said, after the impact of Blue Velvet, Lynch says he wants to stay with the same themes and feelings he explored in that film. And I felt to do Ronnie Rocket at this time would be a step backwards. I still love it, but who knows? Maybe it will always be my next film. I guess it's still evolving. <laughs> and then March 87, Starlog has it on its fantasy film calendar that it's coming out fall 87. Ronnie Rocket was going to come out the same time as Dean Kuntz's Phantoms, which would come out in 98, Return of the Living Dead 2, Robojocks, which will come out in 1990, and Rupert's favorite, uh, Vibes, which would come out in 88. Yes. Yeah, to think all that was to come out full 87 is kind of a trip. Crazy, yeah. All right, May 87, um, the first draft of One Saliva Bubble is complete. And summer 87, he starts working on One Saliva Bubble. And Up at the Lake is not on, is not happening again, is not happening. And then in September 87, um, Dino De Laurentiis' company is starting to lay off people. And now One Saliva Bubble has been, um, uh, what David Lynch pretty much said was, we were six, week, six weeks away from shooting it with Steve Martin and Martin Short when Dino reveals that he's out of money and the company is going away with all the projects. And that's the end of One Saliva Bubble. And so 1988, to think, I had no idea he was that close to making that movie at that yeah, time. I don't know. I don't, yeah. That was a very weird script. That's even weirder than this one in terms of like, I just can't see it. Like it's comedy, but and it kind of reads on page. But with the no, with those comedians, maybe it could work. Yeah, it, well, it's crazy because up at the lake sounds like something that seems like a perfect follow up to Blue Velvet. Like he was going to continue with that, and then all of a sudden that thing is on the launch pad, and then it, now that's gone. Hmm. All right, nineteen eighty eight. Um, 
Warner Brothers, according to Starlog, Warner Brothers has David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket. And he says that uh, David Lynch tells video review that he's going to do it for Geffen. And the only reason I'm doing it for them is because they promised me full control over it. And around that time is when David Geffen made Beetlejuice. And that disappears. 1989, um, David Lynch then gets his hands on the, the novel Wild at Heart. 1990, Twin Peaks comes out and uh, Wild at Heart plays the Cannes Film Festival. And a producer approaches him and says, like, um, Francis Bowie, uh, Bowie, I might be saying his name wrong, but he's like the largest constructor. Uh, he's, he's one of the largest construction companies. He's uh, he played a big role in building the channel. He's getting into the film business and they want Lynch to come make movies for him. And Lynch immediately says he wants to do Ronnie Rocket. And that summer, Wild at Heart is released. 1991, um, February, Lynch signs a three-picture deal with CV2000, um, who's that construction guy, Bowie. And the first project's going to be Ronnie Rocket. And they're going to start shooting in July. February, again, um, it's, it looks like uh, Ronnie Rocket's going to happen. It's going to be $25 million budget, and it's going to start shooting in July. April, um, again, Lynch announces Wait, that what Michael- what year was this? This is all 1991. Oh, that's a huge budget for 1991. Yeah, $25 million, <laughs> And now Michael Anderson is going to be in the movie. It's announced in the LA Times, April 91. May 91, May 1991, David Alvin has been writing music with David Lynch for his upcoming movie, Ronnie Rocket. June 91, um, it's announced that Ronnie Rocket will not shoot next month, according to a reporter. And now David Lynch will make Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. And Ronnie Rocket will be the number two project he makes for them. 1992 fire walk with me comes out and because it doesn't do, do so well they kind of pull the plug on ronnie rocket because and now lynch says after so many years i have the opportunity or, or um lynch is not sure what his next project will be and what it won't be is ronnie rocket after so many years now that i have the opportunity to make it but when I read it, it doesn't do the things it should to me. I lost the electricity in it. It's like a light bulb with no electricity. Huh. And so instead, he's going to do one saliva bubble with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. And then Fire Walk With Me comes out and that gets canceled. And in 93, he's going to do a movie called The Dream of the Bovines. And he takes it to Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando turns it down. And he also tries to make Franz uh, Kafka's The Metamorphosis, and that doesn't take off either. February '97, Lost Highway comes out, and and then he and then he sues CB2000, and about their commitment with Ronnie Rocket, it was this contractual agreement because it didn't happen, um, um, and. 99, he does the straight story. And then in 2000, uh, Chris Gore interviews him about Ronnie Rocket. And he, Chris Gore asks him if it will be a graphic novel. And David Lynch says, are you psychic? That's what I'm, that's, I'm doing that. It's in the early stages. 
And he says, um, it's almost helpful to realize the film in another form and maybe see some things that may help you later. But that comic never came out. That, that would be perfect. I actually, mm -hmm. now that you say it that way. Although I would miss, look, we are kind of talking about it earlier, the just the sound quality. If anything, I would yeah. almost prefer mm -hmm. he did like a stage musical mm. could be version cool of it. I just want to, I want to, I want to actually see and hear the music, how he was envisioning Ronnie's band. Um, Cause I kind of have my version of it in my head, which I can't imagine is anything like his version would be. I don't know oh. that we have similar brains. <laughs> What's interesting too, is that um, like Eraserhead was like, a, he did all this. I mean, they had a great, they had to create all those sounds for that movie. And David Lynch got more and more and more into music throughout the years. You know, he was recording way more music and he just became like a music, you know, he just came up a straight up musician. So I just even wonder what when, you know, it just seems like the the project gets going for a few months and it dies. But that one point when he was actually writing music with another musician, I'm, I'm so curious. I can't curious. believe someone was going to give him. I'm trying to think of how much money twenty five million dollars <laughs> would be now from what that was in ninety mm -hmm. one. Uh, it, it's just like this was always going to be a weird little movie as far as uh, the audience for it. But I guess that was mm -hmm. the thing is Twin Peaks was such a big hit, you know, and that's kind of how executive and producers brains work is they're like, well, I didn't get that show either. And it was huge. So what do I know? Yeah. And then, I mean, so it's pretty much we're at the end of the journey here. Um, he told Bomb Magazine in 2013 that Ronnie Rocket is set in the world of, of the smokestack industry. And in this world, and this is a world that doesn't exist anymore. It was still really alive in the 50s and 60s, but this industry is going away. And then a thing happened, this, this thing called graffiti. Graffiti to me is one of the worst things that ever happened to this world. It completely <laughs> ruined the mood of places. Graffiti hmm. kills the possibility to go back in time and have buildings to be as they were. Hmm. What a weird Lynchian thing to think. Yeah, that's kind of like the last thing I could really find of him talking about Ronnie Rocket. I fucking hate Banksy. I could just <laughs> see it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I don't think we have the same brain. Because if you would ask me, what do you think David Lynch thinks about graffiti? I'd be yeah. like, oh, I bet he loves it. <laughs> yeah, but that's nope. pretty much the history of, <laughs> of every time it was kind of announced and got going and then I mean, another that, project and that's, steps in. That's the time... Because pretty much everything else you said up until that big $25 million point, it was always, I can't imagine a world in which he didn't make the movie he made instead. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of real hardcore David Lynch fans that would never want to live in a world without fire walk with me. But that's kind of the point where I'm just like, mm -hmm. oh man, if he'd really had that much money to make it at that point in his career... Uh, where I kind of feel like people just would have let him get away with anything. I don't think, I think that would have ruined his career in a different sort of way. Um, because I just, I don't think this movie would have been as accessible. Maybe I'm wrong though. I mean, I feel like who would have thought Twin Peaks would have been mm -hmm. like one of the high mm, yeah, biggest shows, it, but it has a lot more mainstream. It, it gets weirder as it goes, but if you rewatch the pilot, it's, it's, it's actually well, incredibly traditional compared to yeah. Ronnie rocket emotionally, well, no, you know, well, he made, I'm sorry. I mean, no, he made fire walk with me instead of Ronnie rocket. So we would have still had 
Twin Peaks, but you wouldn't have had. No, that's fire what I'm saying. We wouldn't have me. had Fire Walk with me. I just meant yeah. that, like, the idea that yeah. we wouldn't have had the Elephant Man, or we wouldn't have had mm-hmm. Blue yeah. Velvet, or Wild at Heart. Th- those are movies for me personally. I wouldn't want to live without. There, on my way here, funnily enough, I, I ran into a DP friend of mine and uh, I mentioned we were doing this and he said that there's a documentary on Robbie Mueller, one of the best DPs of all time. He just went Vim Vendors as main DP. And he says in the middle of the documentary, and I'm not, I didn't ask what decade, Robbie Mueller comes home and he's got messages on his answer machine. He pushes play and the first one is it's like, hey, Robbie, it's Vim. You know, let's talk soon about the movie. Beep. And that goes... Robbie, it's David. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to go for a different DP for Ronnie Rocket. And that's the message. And I'm like, wow. So there's like, even in this documentary on this really famous cinematographer, there's a moment of Ronnie Rocket lore. Wow. And he's oh, not wow. getting the job, the best DP at all time. It's not on an answering machine. And I'm like, message. that was funny. What's the chance? It was just funny to run into someone who even knew that fact on my way to record this. I was like, well, that shows Wow, you that's pretty Ronnie amazing. Reach. Yeah. It's, but I think you're, guys, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm saying, I think you guys were right earlier, though, that maybe now is the best time to make it because he's pretty much you know, done so much, you know, it'd be a great closer. He might be. That's what we don't know because he's making yeah. <laughs> something that they haven't told anyone what oh it is. He hasn't started filming, but it's for Netflix. So it could be Twin yeah. Peaks. But I'd love it to be so funny and awesome if it was Ronnie Rocket. It would be interesting, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, Josh, your question earlier, just about like, what is a, you know, a $25 million budget look, and look like in 91? I was just looking at the highest grossing films like, JFK is a $40 million movie. Um, Naked Gun two and a half is a $23 million movie. The Adams Family is a $30 million movie. Cape Fear is a uh, $30 million movie or 35 million. Marty got a lot of money for that. And Hot Shots is a uh, $26 million movie. So, I mean, you know, on the level with a high end studio comedy or drama at the time it, it's and wild at heart was only 10 million so you think about it that way and i think wild at heart looks like a much more expensive than 10 million dollar movie to be honest based on that um so 25 million would have yeah, been well, especially with something like cape fear i think marty and de niro were probably eating <laughs> up a, a yeah. lot of that money um yeah, yeah that, that's more what i meant just like i don't like what for a david lynch movie especially of this caliber of super strangeness i mean like what was I, I you don't have to look it up but something like lost highway mulholland i wonder what their budgets even were lost how well mulholland would have had a tv budget initially so mm-hmm. it was a yeah, pilot so, and then and then they would have, then he found a french investor to finish it like turn it into a movie and he filmed the rest uh with yeah. with lost highway well that when you're giving the history on ciby 2000 they made lost highway yeah, they did. Oh, so they did make one film together before that. And um, my guess was that was probably a 15 or $20 million movie. Right but, on but the money, 15, 15 million. Yeah, but that's a different, that's a decade, or that's like 15 years later or so, right? Or is it just... No, it's 97. Oh, it would have so been, six well, years. About six, six years, years later, yeah. but, you know, still. So, so still bigger, but, you know, it doesn't feel big. But yeah, no, I agree. It's getting been... very expensive very quickly throughout the 90s, yeah. for what I recall. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much in that. I mean, but like you said, like Eric was saying about the Blue Velvet, I believe the original cut was three hours and he cut like half the movie i could be wrong i know he cut out a lot so like you said who knows how much of this he would have shot and how much of it he would have turned into a you know into his cut because even with a eraser head 
when he first was screening at Fick Hands and everyone, he was like, yo, I got to cut 30 minutes out of this. So, I mean, he's not like, except it feels like for Dune is the only time he really wanted more to be in there because the story was so huge. Yeah, there's but... a lot of story in Dune. Well, and, you know, and it kind of said at the beginning, it's like the, the Ronnie plot in the movie, I can very much see how that would have been is super weird, but like still, you know, it's, it's, a battle of the bands movie it's a rock star mm-hmm. it's the the rise and fall of a rock band sort of story uh and it's kind of more how he would have pared down what he might have changed from the detective plot that's kind of i guess the the wild card here of just mm-hmm. how totally bizarre would this movie have been well, dude look how amazing uh, bill pullman was at sax and imagine uh-huh. like a, a band <laughs> performing yeah. i would have like, loved a bill pullman as the detective oh yeah that would have been good Ooh. maybe a little bit of that got into him maybe that's where the character goes yeah who knows that's interesting uh well any final thoughts guys i mean i feel like we've said all there really is to say uh maybe a tee up one more time since we're probably going to break this into two episodes um your lynch series going on hopefully by the second episode people have already been listening to your show if they aren't already sure um so we, we're doing lynch in two parts where we start with uh, in the first section we go eraser head to wild at heart and then from the second section we go the tv stuff in twin peaks fire walk with me through to inland empire Yes. And that's how we yeah we don't really yeah we don't really touch on uh, the return because we we weren't taking too much into TV just kind of pilots and stuff but um, also a lot to talk about there <laughs> yeah especially because we're pairing every single movie as well as talking about the movies and, and again I think we felt a little freer with Lynch to not go too deep on like what does this all mean because we know for a fact that he is not the guy that would ever. I mean, he, of course, he he encourages and appreciates all interpretations of his work, I think, on some level, but he's not the guy that would ever define it himself. And so we I think we're a little breezier in terms of our discussions of his films and more in depth in terms of pairing his films, which is not an easy task, by the way. It's there's so much. Well, to not go not obvious, like it's so easy yeah. to instantly go, oh, Tetsu Iron Man with like there's some yeah. because you've seen the as we we were talking about it. The hardest thing is the movies that come after are largely influenced by him. Like, so if you pick one that's after a lot of them have been influenced, a lot of the weirder stuff. So we kind of jump all around, but it, it, it ended up honestly being one of my favorites we've done. It, it was a lot of fun and just a lot of just interesting. It's, it was interesting to see his films in order and chart the decisions he's making on the business and artist level from beat to beat. That was something that I hadn't spent much time thinking about before we did this one. And that was, so I think that comes across pretty nicely, but I'm really glad we got to do this in between now because this does feel like a missing piece that we didn't discuss at all really. So now totally eyes in. Thank you guys. Well, actually I would, I would, I would pair um, this movie, Ronnie rocket with a Japanese movie called electric thousand electric dragon, 80,000 V. Okay. It's like, um, that's quite a title <laughs> yeah i think uh, you can watch a trailer on youtube but it feels like a japanese version of this pretty much mm, um cool. yeah it's uh it's a it's it's only 53 minutes also the know? only other movie that struck me that i was thinking about that might have been influenced by the script or one element of it that i a movie i love and have talked about quite a bit on our show is bad boy bubby because 
at the end of, in the last act of Bad Boy Bubby, a guy who's been you know raised for 40 years in a room, so doesn't know anything about the world, he gets on stage and grabs a mic and just starts shouting nonsense and craziness, and he becomes really popular and a thing. And that little chart, that little arc that that character takes definitely reminded me when I was reading the script of the arc of Rocket Ronnie. And so you wonder, like, oh, okay, I wonder if, you know, Rolf the Hero would have known about this. You have no idea, you know, how ideas are. But if you haven't seen that, that's another crazy, you know, wild move that actually paired pretty well with it, too. I, I, I had a weird instinct for some reason, and I don't even know why. I was like, why is it this in my head? And I haven't even seen it in years, but Rock and Rule, for some reason, <laughs> feels like a movie I want to pair this with. And that's a weird animated um it's not like a great movie necessarily but it's definitely a cult movie uh very music music centric you know there isn't necessarily a sort of a music saves the world thing happening with ronnie rocket although you know the music does seem pretty important and pretty phenomenal in a way like just he is a phenomenon himself and so something about that and I don't know the the way the the way that rock and roll begins. It's it's just so weird. That's the reason I think I'm just gonna be weird with my pairing of it. <laughs> I need to rewatch that, and <laughs> and I'm happy in this podcast we got to hear I bring up possession and you bring up love lines because yeah. like the two most <laughs> always on brand EP movies I know. <laughs> That's right. That's what we do. <laughs> awesome. Maybe it's just because of the Rossellini being brought up earlier. Now I was just thinking of Guy Madden's The Saddest Music in the World. Oh, I like that. Yeah, 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 that's good. Truly bizarre performing movies. Um, Well, why don't you guys give us your social handles so people can follow all your (laughs) feelings on, uh, I'm going to say your witticisms. That's more just Elric's posts. Don't give me that credit. Brian has uh, enviable Blu-ray posts. (laughs) of all uh, your new bo- acquisitions <laughs> i am uh, bob freelander on twitter and then i have a just the disc pod twitter and we have a pure cinema pod twitter and a pure cinema pod instagram that we use that's our main socials and we have a uh pure cinema movie club facebook that is kind of our big little hangout area on facebook i've got a, a new uh t public a t-shirt dropping that is inspired by this episode it's going to say real as a donut man motherfucker <laughs> and it's going to be a cross between once upon a time and ronnie rocket and everyone is going to buy this shit um but no i don't really but i am on twitter just my name and where else uh, instagram i don't know i just post my head and stuff that, that don't go there. pictures of your uh, actually letterbox yeah go to letterbox that's the only oh, thing yeah. worth a damn it's got movies i like We're both letterbox. on letterbox we have an hq page pure yeah. cinema hq definitely go there because that links to both of our profiles, but we post lists for episodes and other stuff at the Letterboxd HQ page. And we're kind of, that's like our landing page, more or less. Oh, for your podcast? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I got to follow you guys. Yeah, they they yeah they started a thing with like small uh, film businesses or companies that could get like a, I guess it's like having a pro account, but it does help uh, for kind of uh, bringing all the lists and titles into one place because rather than a website, you know. Oh, yeah, we awesome. love Letterboxd. Nice. All right. And you guys can follow us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made, where we'll post concept art script pages for this episode specifically. We'll post those diff- weird little doodles that Ronnie gives <laughs> the detective at the beginning of the script. Um, you should also check out the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you to watch uh, some movies and TV shows for free. And more importantly, video of our podcast. I don't know if anyone would want to watch 
this horrible Zoom videos, but we're here. Uh, more interesting are the ones we shot in our studio before COVID. You know, that looks nice and has real lighting mm -hmm. and uh, we aren't looking at our boring bedrooms. <laughs> um, but I want to give a special thanks to everyone at the Electric Surge Network, like Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and... Steven Scarlatta. Saying we won't see you at the movies. Life is a donut. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.